turn in your Bibles, if you'd like, to Genesis chapter 1. That's somewhere pretty close to the beginning of your Bibles, um, if, uh, if you need a little guidance. Uh, this fall in RUF, we are going to spend some time uh, studying the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, the reason being, uh, I, I think the early chapters of Genesis both ask and answer lots and lots of questions that I know my students are wrestling with. Questions like, who am I? Questions like, why am I here? Questions like, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? How am I supposed to think about work? How am I supposed to think about relationships? And how am I supposed to make sense of all of the suffering and pain that I see in our world and that I experience myself? Now, I do know that you are not my students. But I also know this, that from time to time, all of us need to sort of go back to the basics. We need to be reminded of what we believe. Uh, we sing the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Which means what? It means that even if you have walked with Christ for years, your heart and your mind is a sieve. You and I, we struggle with spiritual memory loss. And so it's good and it's important and it's actually helpful for us to return to the basics sometimes and to think about them. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And the question that we are going to be thinking about together this morning is this. Who are you? Who are you? Now, why is that important for you to know? Some of you might know the name Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers is the father of client-centered therapy. After decades of research and observation, having met with tens of thousands of clients, Carl Rogers concluded his practice with this observation. The central core difficulty in people as I have come to know them is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. Is that how you feel about yourself? Confession. It is quite often how I feel about myself. And the good news for you and the good news for me this morning is that God speaks to that. In the passage that we're going to look at, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. This is God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 26. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the, of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He has done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done. Folks, there's my opinion there's your opinion, and then there's what we just read, which is the very Word of God. We should ask Him to teach us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You that You have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own, but that You have spoken to us in Your Word. This morning, we need ears to hear and eyes to see. We need faith. We need understanding. We need for you to open our hearts and our minds. We need to hear you sing over us that sweet benediction. You are very good. Would you do that? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I didn't read the entire chapter 1 of Genesis because it's long. But if I had, you would have noticed something. You would have noticed that there is this kind of rhythm, there is this this kind of cadence as you read through Genesis chapter 1. God creates a light, and then He declares that the light is good, and then we read, it was morning and evening the first day. Then we read, God created the heavens, and He pronounces it good. And then we hear, There was morning, there was evening, the second day. And it goes on and on like that until the sixth day. And when we get to the sixth day, all of a sudden things change. Things slow way down. The rhythm is interrupted. And we hear God say to himself, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the birds of the heaven, and over livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, what's going on there? Why do I point that out? Folks, it's it's because of this. It's because God wants us to see something here. God wants us to know something. He wants us to believe something. What God is doing is He is drawing our attention to the crown of His creation, to the apex, to the zenith, to the climax of His creative work. What is the crown of God's creation? You. You are. I am. We are. All of humanity is. God said, let us make man 
in our image, after our likeness. Now, what in the world does that mean? Volumes and volumes have been written trying to explain, trying to answer that question. And virtually every theological system has a slightly different interpretation, answer to that question. St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas believed that being created in the image of God referred to being created with the ability to reason, intellect. Others have suggested that the essence of the image of God is freedom, or it is creativity, or it is personality. Still others have made the argument that what it means to be created in the image of God is to be created with a moral sense, with the ability to know right and wrong, good and bad, justice and injustice. And while there is truth in each and every one of those descriptions, the question has to be asked, is this what Genesis 1 means when it says that we were created in the image of God? In recent years, studies in the language and in the context of the ancient Near East have given us a window into the original meaning of this phrase, image of God. Now what you need to know is that that phrase, image of God, it was a very familiar phrase in the ancient Near East. And it was used in basically two ways. The first way is this. Very often... A king of an empire actually never traveled to the farthest reaches of his empire. There was no mass transit. There were no trains. There were no planes. There were no automobiles. So what the king would do is he would commission an artist to make statues of himself. And then he would have those statues placed all around his kingdom so that he could remind the people that he was king and that they were not. Those statues represented him. Those statues represented his authority. Well, when God says, let us make man in our image, God is saying that you and I, we were created to represent him. We were created to reflect him. But notice... This is not something you or I can do on our own. In verse 27, we read, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What that means is that we, not you, not me, but we were created to represent God. A people, a community, with all of our differences, with all of our diversity. As one commentator put it, the image of God is not possessed by an isolated individual, but is possessed by individuals in community. And what that means is that you will never be all that you were created to be unless you are in community. The image of God also means that we were created to carry out God's rule and His care and His creativity on earth. We were, we were created to develop the hidden potentials of God's creation so that the whole world might celebrate His glory. Imagine that you were a 15th century sculptor and one day Michelangelo comes to you and he asks you if you would be willing to come to his studio and complete a piece of work that he has begun. 
That's what's going on in this passage. That's what's going on in verse 26 when God says, and let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's what's going on when God says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 tells us that we were created to be stand-ins for God. Ruling and caring for the rest of His creation as His underkings, as His vice-regents, as His stewards. But what does this look like? Well, the good news is, is that God doesn't just create us in His image and tell us to go off and be His image. He actually gives us a picture of what that image looks like. That picture, it is Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, we read this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And what that means is that if you want to know what you were supposed to look like, what you were created to look like, all you have to do is look at Jesus because he is the perfect image of God. Now, what would, you, what, would you, what would you say was Jesus' modus operandi in life? What do you think, sort of, what core characteristic identifies and defines him? I would suggest to you that it's love. Love is what compelled him. Love is what characterized him. When the man came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? How did Jesus answer? Jesus answered to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is the image. We are the image. What does this mean? It means this. It means that your calling and my calling in this world is to love. Your calling and my calling in this world is to serve one another. Your calling and my calling in this world is to seek the lost, to bring comfort, to bring relief, to consider others better than ourselves, to protect the vulnerable. But it's more than that. What is Jesus going to do when he returns? He's going to remake, and he is going to restore, not just you and me, to who we were supposed to be, who we were created and redeemed to be. But Jesus is going to return and He is going to remake and restore all of creation, the heavens and the earth. Which means that original calling that we read of in Genesis 1, that's our calling. To, to, to develop the potentialities of God's world to the praise of His glory. And here's, here's the good news. That work begins the moment you look to Christ in faith. Because the moment you look to Christ in faith, He sends His Spirit into you to work in you and to begin working through you as the image of God. Friends, this is who you were created to be. And this is what you were created to do. So the phrase, 
image of God was used in the ancient Near East to describe the statues that a king set up around his kingdom to represent himself and to represent his authority. But there's a second way that the, that the term image of God was understood in the ancient Near East, and that's this. In his book, The Liberating Image, Richard, Richard Milton makes the case that in the ancient Near East, only one person was known as the image of God. Only one person. And that person was the king. That means that when someone was walking down the streets of Egypt or Mesopotamia or Canaan or Assyria and they heard the phrase, image of God, the picture that came into their minds was the king and only the king. Guys, that's revolutionary. That's crazy. That turns the world upside down. Think about it for a second. The Israelites were the first people to hear Genesis 1. Sometime after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. For 400 years, they had had it pounded into their heads over and over and over again. The king, the Pharaoh, he is the image of God. But Genesis 1 doesn't say that the king and only the king is the image of God, does it? It says that all human beings, male and female, are the image of God. And what that means is this. You are royalty. And you are surrounded by royalty. Richard quoted C.S. Lewis earlier. I got a couple C.S. Lewis quotes for you as well. In The Way of Glory, Lewis writes this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, uh, civilization these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Folks, this means that everyone, without exception, is glorious, is splendid, is delightful, is beautiful, is valuable, is significant, is a treasure of infinite worth. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Now, what does all of this mean for you? What does this mean for you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock when you head to the office or as you stand around the water cooler or as you, as you go to Kroger to do your weekly shopping, as you, as you sit in class? What does this mean? Well, first, it, it transforms. It has to transform the way we look at and interact with other people. You see, we live in a very us-versus-them world, don't we? I mean, there are Sunnis and there are Shias. There are Russians and there are Ukrainians. There are illegal immigrants and there are citizens of the United States. That's out there. But what about in here? Folks, there are Christians and there are non-Christians. There are straight people and there are gay people. 
There are Republicans and there are Democrats. There are liberals and there are conservatives. There are public schoolers and there are homeschoolers. There are husbands and there are wives. There are children and there are parents. We live in a very us-versus-them world. Now, why do I mention that? Well, it's because, as Miroslav Wolf put it, it is very, very easy to exclude the other from the community of humans and at the same time to excuse ourselves from the community of sinners. But what Genesis 1 is telling us is that everybody, everyone, believer and unbeliever, Gay person and straight person, man and woman, scholar, dullard, CEO, street person, everyone is created in the image of God. So how might this both inform and transform how you interact with people tomorrow? Well, in a word, respect. This means that since everyone is created in the image of God, we must respect not only people who think like us and look like us and believe like us and live like us. We actually must respect people who don't look like us, people who don't think like us, people who don't live like us, people who don't believe like us. This past weekend, my wife Kathy and I Spent some time in New York City. Uh, I turned 50 back in May, and we went up for sort of a, an extended weekend, sort of a birthday celebration, and we had a great time. And we spent a lot of time walking around the city. And we saw lots of things in the city that we really, really liked. And to be honest with you, we saw lots of things in the city that, that made us feel sort of uncomfortable. There are all kinds of people in New York City. Every nation is represented there, it seems. And there are all kinds of people who live all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different lifestyles. And there are poor people, and there are rich people, and there are clean people, and there are dirty people. We live in an us-versus-them world. How? How is it that, that we are supposed to find the strength, the ability to respect people who are different than us? It's by remembering what John Calvin said as he reflected on what it means to be created in the image of God. In his first catechism, Calvin writes this. He says, you might say he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. That's not the way we usually think, is it? It's not the way we usually react. And yet it's one implication of what we see in Genesis chapter 1. To quote Tim Keller, this is a radical doctrine. We must treat everyone with grace, everyone with gentleness, everyone with respect, everyone with reverence. That's how the image of God informs and transforms the way you see and treat other people. But it also informs and transforms the way we see and treat ourselves. You see, all of us have a sense of self, a self-image, a sense of identity. And that sense of identity, that sense of self, has been shaped and it has been molded throughout our lives by the words of our parents, our siblings, 
boyfriends or girlfriends, husbands or wives, teachers or coaches, friends, even rivals and enemies. You are good or you are bad. You are worthy or you are unworthy. You are promising or you are hopeless. You are intelligent or you are stupid. You are a winner or you are a loser. You are cool or you are a nerd. These words, they are very, very powerful. And each time you hear them, they are etched deeper and deeper into your heart and into your soul and into your sense of self. And they leave an indelible impression on you, shaping and molding the way you see and understand yourself. But what you see in Genesis 1 is that God, the King and Creator of the universe, looks at you and He looks at me and He rejoices over us. You are good. You are very good. God's benediction over us isn't based on anything we've done or haven't done. It's not a moral evaluation. It is a being evaluation. And God is saying to you and to me, you are good. You are very good. As Faramir says to Sam Ganji in the Two Towers, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. In other words, to be highly esteemed by someone you highly esteem is the greatest thing in the world. Beloved, you are esteemed by God. That should heal you. That should transform you. That should enable you. That should compel you. What this passage shouts from the mountaintops is that you are glorious. You are splendid. You are valuable because you are made in the image of God. Even though you are deeply flawed, even though you are full of contradictions, even though you struggle or you don't struggle with sin, you are like a castle. Even in ruin, you are magnificent. Do you believe that? Some of you probably hear this and you think to yourself, this just sounds like a bunch of that self-esteem junk wrapped up in religious language. And what I would like to suggest to you is you're wrong. Self-esteem speak tells you love yourself, accept yourself as you are. But what Genesis 1 is calling us to is not necessarily to love ourselves, but to understand that God loves us, that He accepts us, that He prizes us, that He treasures us, that He sings over us. If you believe that, it actually frees you up from self-concern and the burden of yourself. There are others of you who might be thinking, you're telling me that I have to love him or I have to love her or I have to love them? That's crazy. There's no way I can do that. Still others of you might be thinking, Jeff, you just don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. 
Other people might be like a magnificent castle, but I'm like an abandoned double-wide with its doors hanging open, flapping in the wind. Let me encourage you this morning. The good news of the Gospel is that this isn't something you have to do on your own or by yourself. This is something that you don't have to whip up on your own. While we are most definitely called to take up our crosses daily and follow Christ, while we are called to love God and love our neighbor, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that this is first and foremost the work of God in the lives of those who look to Him in faith. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Folks, God is in the business of change. God is in the business of transformation. And what that means is that you and I, we are works in progress. And it also means that you and I can have hope, real certainty, because God always brings to completion every good work that begins. The Apostle John puts it like this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. John is, is affirming what we read in Genesis chapter 1, and he's also being very clear about the fact that we aren't yet what we should be, but we will if we look to Christ in faith. You are a child of God. You are a work in progress. And the day will come when you will be all that you were created and redeemed to be. So what do we do now? What do we do between the now and the that day? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed more and more into the image of God. Where can we go to see the glory of the Lord? The Apostle Paul answers that question a few verse of that question a few verses later in chapter four, verse six. Listen to his words. They, they, they sound a little creational. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? in the face of Jesus. What do you see when you look at Jesus? With eyes of faith, you see the image of God who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. You see the perfect image of God willingly become one who had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. What do you see when you look at Jesus? You see the perfect image of the invisible God, 
on the cross, marred and disfigured so that you and I could be remade into what we were created to be. What do you see when you look at Jesus? You see the perfect image of the invisible God who is the very heart of God, becoming sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. What happens when you see Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God? It's what theologians call sanctification by contemplation. Your heart is warmed and it is softened. And a warm and a soft heart is like wax that is warm and soft. It's ready to take the imprint or the image of something that is pressed into it as a seal is pressed into wax. What is that image? It's Jesus. The result, as you look at Jesus, you become like Jesus. Would that God would give us the eyes of faith to more and more see Jesus in his royalty, in his excellence, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his kindness, in his grace, in his mercy, in his goodness, every beauty that could warm our hearts. Why? Because we imitate what we admire and we become what we worship. Because adoring Him with all of our hearts, we become more and more like Him who is the image of the invisible God. Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this reminder of who we are would this truth that we are created in your image, royal representatives, the beloved of God, would that change the way we look at ourselves? Would it free us up from self-concern and would it compel us into the lives of the people around us, people who are like us and people who aren't like us? Would we live our lives as individuals and as a community in such a way that the watching world would look on and think, I don't know what they have, but I want it. Oh, would you help us to believe? We, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. We come to you now with our gifts, with our tithes, and we offer them to you as a small token of our appreciation of our love for your love. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.